0: You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man, and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place, and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Holly Wainwright has had a long career as a journalist and editor, most recently as head of content at Mamma Mia, Australia's only women's media company. Author of four best-selling books and host of two of the country's most successful podcasts, her honest, relatable and wise commentary on life in the 21st century has earned her an army of loyal followers. So, Holly, welcome to Five of My Life.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Now, I don't want to burst into tears with disappointment, but have you ever listened to any Five of My Life?
1: <laughs> I've listened to almost all of them.
0: No way. I love Seriously.
1: It. I actually have a real soft spot for, um, and not everybody does actually, but for podcasts about the things people like. So, I mean, there's Island Discs, obviously the classic, right? I listen to that religiously. Um, and so I love this. I think that your whole premise of that you learn a lot about people through their choices is spot on. And the conversations are always thoughtful. I'm a little bit nervous because I've heard some very smart people on this. And uh, I don't know that my choices are deep enough.
0: Wow. I was. I mean, A, thank you for listening because you are podcast royalty. We're lucky if we get 200,000, you know, listeners a year and you get Two million a month or whatever, so w- amazing.
1: The thing that people love about um, what we do on Mamma Mia Out Loud, which is the big show that I'm on, which is part of Mamma Mia, and I, I co-host it with Mia Friedman and Jesse Stevens, is we talk about everything. And it sounds so such an obvious thing, but you know, we we talk about important things and silly things and personal things and theoretical things. And I think that people have just really connected to that idea of going in a million different directions and not having to be pigeonholed into liking one thing. And also, we argue, but in a very respectful way. And there isn't enough of that. These days, I think, oh, my gosh, as soon as you say these days, don't you just realise that you sound really old? <laughs> anyway, these days, if you disagree with someone, it feel its death threats get thrown, you know, whereas respectful disagreement is something that we're big fans of. That was a long way of saying um, it's all good.
0: <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean, I know I'm not really the bullseye of your target audience, but um, I think it's fantastic. You're, you're relatable, and I love the fact that you do have those discussions. There's something that's happened that's, that's rotten in society where if you take an issue, I mean, it could be anything. I don't care. It could be Brexit. It could be climate change. It could be whatever. If you don't agree with me, but not just agree with me, enthusiastically shout about how much you agree with me, then I don't go Holly disagrees with me on Brexit or or our Indonesian foreign policy. I go, Holly is a bad human. Yeah. Holly can't come to my dinner parties. Holly's not one of us. And you go, really? I mean, are we really that moronic? And anyway, so so I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's wonderful to go, do you know what? You know I I totally disagree. I mean even people it could be covid, could be anything. Saying really mild, a mild statement like, I don't know, I think people use disposable face masks in incompetently. You're a Trump supporter who wants to kill all people. You go well, where,
1: where where It's where? true. It's, it's like we have a tick list of opinions and if you tick one of those boxes then it auto, it fills all the other ones too. Yeah. So if you even question something like disposable face masks yeah. Immediately, tick, 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 you are all those other things. I know. I really rail against that, while also not wanting to rail against it too much because there's too much railing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, the great thing is <laughs> th- this is five of my life. So, wait, and and thank you for listening. And and what I'm trying to do with the format, it's. I mean, I know you get this, but but increasingly everyone else is getting it. It's not about the choices. The choices yeah. are a. Sp- Springboard. So if someone chooses Stairway to Heaven, and I go, why? And they go, because it's a great guitar solo. You go, oh, God. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't briefed them properly. Anyway, yeah. So, so that, how about that for pressure? So yeah.
1: Well, it's true. But uh, people agonise over their choices, and I know they do, because I hear you ask them. Um, and I did but i tried really hard not to because i know it's not the point. The point is not to make myself look like i have exquisite
0: taste. <laughs> well we're starting with the film and i think you have got exquisite taste <laughs> because it is the mummy and daddy of rom-coms. Oh, I know. oh we've got to love. When Harry met Sally 1989. Uh, Holly, tell us about that.
1: So it is a little bit of a basic choice, Nigel. I think that's what we would call it, but i Love that movie so much for several different reasons. One is it's a great movie, and I know that's not the answer you want, but in terms of structure, writing, humour, concept, it's just great. But I think the thing that I love about it really is the way it makes me feel because I used to watch that movie religiously not not very long after it came out, certainly in England when I was – a young person in my early, early 20s. And me and my best friends, we used to sit around and watch it on a Saturday afternoon and drink wine and and debate, can men or women really be friends? Which of course, of course they can. I think we've moved past that question. <laughs> and there are quite a lot of now problematic elements to this movie, I guess you'd say. But it's it's a movie that never fails to make me feel better, to lift my mood, make me feel connected to people. And it's the movie that now... If I'm in a low moment, I put it on.
0: Why does it make you feel good? I mean, I love the film, but why does it make you feel good? What are the themes that speak to you in it?
1: The humour married with those sharp insights that are very true about relationships and people and dating and family. It's just exactly what I like in art. And I know there are, sure there are people rolling their eyes at the idea that when Harry Met Sally is art, but it's great art. It's written by Nora Ephron, who is a brilliant writer. She, One of her books, Heartburn, which is a very famous um, memoir of hers, well, novella, but rooted in, in truth, was also one of my favourite books as a young person, even though I knew nothing of the background of it.
0: Oh, based on... Personal bloody heartbreak. And and, and Sally and Harry Met Sally is based on Nora as well. It I, is. Yeah. It is
1: based on her. And Harry is based on Rob Reiner, who's the director. And she just has a talent. She had a talent um, that is much copied and much aspired to of being able to nail sharp personal truths with humour and style and wit. What writer does not want to do that? So I think it's a bar you want to aspire to, while also just being a movie that makes me feel like a hug.
0: Nora, God lover. she was what a <coughs> genius. She had one of my all-time favourite quotes about her drop kick of her husband, the Watergate bloke, yes. who was screwing around when she was pregnant. She wrote in Heartburn um, about the character that's obviously based on him. Uh, he would have sex with a Venetian blonde. Yes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you know what? That book, when you I, re, I reread it recently. It's very cutting about him, obviously, but also about the the mistress, about the other woman, in a way that now feels very unsisterly, like we have a different (laughs) lens with which we view these things at least publicly. But such. Do, do wit, we have to be sisterly with home
0: wreckers now? Is that, is that we, the thing?
1: Look, we do a little bit. Okay.
0: Nigel, yes. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I'll, I'll follow orders, whatever it is. And we
1: don't say home wreckers. <laughs> oh, don't we?
0: <laughs> but if you are screwing a, a, a married man whose wife is pregnant, I'm just old. I He's suppose.
1: the home wrecker.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Yeah, I buy yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't have to. No one forced him. Exactly. To, he didn't fall over into her.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. And Nora, I mean, very famously, said everything is copy, which I don't necessarily agree with. As somebody who does write from personal experience quite a bit, I, everything isn't copy. You have to have things in your life that are not. Yeah. Well, I mean, now that the the modern version of that is everything is content, right? Yeah. You have to have things in your life that are not content. But God, she was good at turning the, uh, the lemons into lemonade. And I think in when Harry Met Sally, the sparkle is turned right up.
0: I love that. Now, here we go. So on content, stepping right over the line, um, how did you meet Brent?
1: My partner. Uh, yeah, yeah. sorry, Brent
0: is your partner. I, yeah. should, I should say that. Who the hell's Brent? Who the hell's Brent? <laughs> yeah.
1: Brent is my partner of now well, yeah, 17 years. Um, We met at work in the most ordinary way. Uh Um, But back in the... When when I met him, I was working in women's magazines. So I worked for quite a long time in like the weekly mags here in Australia for what used to be ACP and then was Bauer, etc. And... I was working on a public holiday in um, on, on this weekly mag that I was working on and we had a freelancer coming in that day, the sub. Subs, people who don't work in – they don't really exist so much anymore but they check copy. They check stories. And at that time, Brett was a freelance sub because he'd been a reporter and he would, had quit a job and he was between jobs, blah, blah. Anyway, and he turned up to um, – to work a shift and it wasn't love at first sight. Everybody would like it if it was but I do remember going down in the lift to meet him because it was public holiday and the office was closed, feeling there was something familiar about him and there wasn't. So that's interesting but it took actually an office nosebleed for us to connect. He worked there for a while and one day he had a nosebleed in the office and I went and got him some tissues and there you go.
0: I love it when I hear stories about it's great. Where else do
1: you meet people? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's funny because I, one of the reasons why that story is improbable is that for more than 20 years, I have worked in almost entirely female offices and I'm straight. So there hasn't been a lot of opportunity to meet men at work during that time. So often a man would come in to do things like subbing shifts or, you know, some typically male role. And all the women's heads go up like meerkats in the office, and be like, "Oh, there's <laughs> testosterone in the building." And it wasn't quite like that with Brent, but it, it is true that I've worked almost exclusively with women for a really long time now.
0: So, are you saying that the gender diversity at Mamma Mia is a disaster? It's not that great. <laughs> we have
1: tried to make some key diversity hires by you bringing in a few token dudes. Men. We have got a few dudes, <laughs> uh, but not that
0: many. Are we going to move on to your second choice on Five My Life? And, and I have to really thank you for this. And this is one of the joys of me doing this podcast, which is, uh, you know, largely selfish. I get to meet lovely people and and watch and read things I wouldn't normally. And I am often surprised. So, so one of the biggest surprises was uh, I read one of Monica McInerney's books. Mm. Delightful lady. But the truth is when I picked it up, I thought, well, here we go. I'm, I take my research seriously, but it's not really my wheelhouse. Fucking lovely, yeah, right. It was She's pretty great. good. So then you, unbelievable, you go, you choose a a book for a nine year old girl, yes. Um, and I think, well, I'll go. I'll book, I bought it on Book Depository. It's Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, and, and I have. I'm holding my copy here. I've, I've taken like five pages of notes. It was well, I Isn't enjoyed it, it. as a as an old man, <laughs> not a young girl. I read it, and not trying to be. Put myself in the shoes of a young girl i just read it as me it's brilliant it's wise it's funny it's interesting it's a page turner i mean I-, I i could talk to you just about this book for an hour i, I utterly oh that makes me very it. happy i loved it so t- tell me please why on five my life you have chosen Harriet the Spy, uh, written in the year that I was born, um, back in the 60s. Yes. Explain yourself. So
1: I was seven, actually, and I was on holiday with my family in America. because. um, So I'm originally from England, grew up in Manchester. My parents have a real soft spot for uh, New York because they spent an exchange year there. When my dad was a a baby university lecturer, they went and um, spent a year there. So we went on holiday there when I was seven, and it was one of the most memorable trips of my life, no question. New York City and one of their friends gave me that book as a present and I read it I've always been a voracious reader but I read it and then I read it again and again and again and I became completely obsessed with that book it's about a young girl I think she's 11 I think she's meant to be about 11 Harriet and she is from a privileged Upper East Side family maybe Upper West Side family and she has a nanny and she wants to be a writer and a spy and so she keeps these diaries in which she writes all of her thoughts about all of her friends. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and then unsurprisingly, perhaps her friends get hold of the diaries now and everything falls apart. The thing that's so interesting about this book is, A, I think I related very hard to Harriet. Not, not. I didn't come from a privileged background in New York City, but I... Obsessively wrote things down as a young as a child, and I loved reading and writing. And I also was obsessively nosy, as Harriet is. She plays this game that I play all the time. I wonder if you do too, where she goes to her din- a diner and she sits at the counter and listens to people's conversations and she imagines what the people look like, and then she turns around to see if she got it right. Whether and I've always done that. I love that. I love that. So endlessly curious about people. Anyway. The thing that's particularly great about this, A, I related hard. B, it's kind of prickly. Like I read it, I thought, I've got a daughter. She is 12 turning 13. I was waiting to read her this book. I was so excited. I was like, I'm going to read her my favourite book. She's going to love it. She did not love it.
0: Ah, okay.
1: She thought that Harriet was mean. (laughs) She thought it was bullying. (laughs) She thought that she had it coming to her, and she does. When when her friends find out, there's this period of you know self reflection, and um, it's really interesting because she's a prickly character, and I, I love that. I love difficult heroines. I love complexity in female characters, and I think a lot of that probably comes from Harriet.
0: It reminds me of some of Roald Dahl's work, where he hmm. was not patronising. A bit like the first Toy Story, you can enjoy it as an adult. That there, there is. Bits in that book I've written down, you know, as I said, three or four pages of quotes that speak to adults. Mm. So that, that, that a one thing which I think is hilarious, she keeps on mentioning fat people. Yes. Throughout it, no. Another
1: thing that my daughter had a problem yes, with. Yes, oh, I can
0: imagine. Oh God, there's Jane, she's fat, and there's Dave, yeah. he's fat. You go, you couldn't write that now. No. But there's stuff where um, rich people are boring. Yes. I had a lot of money and was the most miserable man alive. Mm. Uh, another quote, brilliant, which I, want, I need to ask you about. People who love their work love life. Oh, yes. I mean, come on. This is a kid's book. And you know. go, This is fantastic.
1: And I mean, that's something I tell my kids all the time. They don't believe me.
0: But there's there's <laughs> this one about, about marriage. This is old golly, the nanny, um, about marriage. I doubt if it's all fun. Nothing ever is, you know. How much wisdom? Uh, I mean, hey. And then you go, we all make choices every minute of every day. Uh, And then the last one I wouldn't mind chatting to you about, uh, it's actually a quote from William Cowper, but how sweet, how passing sweet is solitude? Yes. How are you with solitude?
1: I'm actually very good at it. I love it. Um, I'm a sociable person, but I like to be alone. I came to Australia by myself, travelling by myself when I was 23, and I didn't settle down, in inverted commas, with my partner until my mid-30s. And I... Like my own time, when I was pregnant with my first child, I remember having a bit of a panic attack at the idea that I would never be alone again.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I, what, so, so we are brothers from another mother. If someone says to me, and, and, and Kate is different to this, if someone says to me, oh gosh, um, y, you know we had plans for Saturday and now we don't. My initial response isn't, damn, what am I going to do? It's, woohoo! Exactly. I, I, I might read or draw. Very much.
1: <laughs> and when and before we had kids, Brent used to travel quite a lot for work, and less so once we had kids for obvious reasons. And um, I remember him being away on a trip, and I was alone in the house, and I was and quite pregnant. And I remember thinking that I will never be alone again because I'll always have my child with me, or Brent will never bloody go anywhere.
0: <laughs> do, do, do you know the um? What's the book? God, I love it. The the kids' book, which is the the mummy elephant. She just oh, wants to be left alone. Yes. And, and the mummy elephant is on the loo and, and, and the <laughs> toddler comes. It's, it's so well done. Yeah. The mummy elephant goes for a bath and the kid comes in and shows her a stick or a stone. Yes, She's just, <laughs> oh,
1: and I think I relate to that. So I, I like solitude. I also like people, though. I'm not, um, you know, I like socialising on my own terms, but I definitely like solitude, and I, which you kind of have to as a writer to a point. Yeah. Um, Because it's a lonely business.
0: Now, your third choice. Have you ever got involved with the Spotify list of Five My You know
1: what? I haven't. And every time I hear you mention it, I always think I must go and look at that. And I'm always driving or something and I don't in the moment, but I'm going to.
0: So so I am obviously biased because it's mine. But there is a really profound point about it. And God love my dentist because she plays it in the surgery. Oh, great. Is... Normally, which is fine, if you like blues, then, then Spotify or Apple will give you more blues. And that's great, or country music or heavy metal or whatever else. The thing about the Five My Life Spotify, it's now got like 70 tracks on it, is it's totally random. No algorithm on earth yes. will give you this, because this is a song that's really important to Holly really important to Rabbi Kamins, really important to Anthony Albanese. So they're obviously not rubbish songs because they're my guest's really, really, really thoughtfully chosen songs, but they are totally diverse. Mm. So if you have got a, a, you know, you work in a factory or you're driving all day or you're driving to Melbourne and it's going to take you 10 hours, it's a brilliant random Playlist where you're not just going to get the same old, same old top ten hits. Anyway, that, that's my which
1: pick. I love because I have a typically Generation X like rail against algorithms. Yeah, I'm like, stop telling me what I want. That's
0: exactly right. And
1: uh, it's even Spotify, which is genius, but it goes, you like this song, so you're going to like this song. I'm like, I don't like that song. Yeah. You're missing the ge- the magic of this song that I like.
0: <laughs> so so uh, anyway, uh,
1: uh, again, I sound like an old person when I say
0: that. That's all a long way of saying you. have Done it again. Oh. Because your song is, it's been such a delight researching you, Ollie. Your, your song, I adore it for two reasons over and above the fact that it's chuffing fantastic. One is it's partly based on my favourite song. I can't say my favourite because I can't reveal it. One of my all favourite songs, oh. which is Loaded by Primal Scream.
1: You know, I didn't know that.
0: There you go. That's what we learned. I'm giving you, you diamonds go. on Five of My Life. The second reason I love it is Sir Michael Caine shows it on desert island disc Did he? so you you have got taste holly yeah <laughs> oh my goodness
1: i haven't listened to that ever. look that's made my day
0: i'm legitimizing you yeah <laughs> uh, so it is the 2008 second single from elbow's fourth studio album one day like this
1: Brilliant song, obviously, but also it means so much to me on many levels. So I'm, as discussed, originally from England, from Manchester in the north of England. Now, I am a very um, anti-nationalistic person. I don't identify strongly as an English person, but growing up in the north of England, I do identify as a northerner. You're you're of English roots, you understand this strange tribalism we have going on anyway. And Elbow are from Manchester, they're from Bury. And no one who wasn't from there could have written this song because it's about love. The song is about love. But it's, it's whole premise of like one day like this a year will see me right. Like one day when the sun is shining, one day that isn't glum and grey and the sky is low. I mean, I, I love Manchester. Don't get me wrong. My family all still live there. Um, it's, you know, part of me. But the sky is always at eyebrow height. And it is always just ever so slightly raining. (laughs) And it is always grim. And so when the sun comes out, the joy that captured in this. Anyway, as a song, so I love its roots and what it reminds me of. But also, it's a very uplifting song, even though it's got a a slight melancholy, which is my favourite kind of optimism. Is optimism tinged with a bit of melancholy? And also, add to all that, my wonderful mum, Who is in her mid 70s, about 10 years ago, maybe less, she joined a choir because she loves to sing. And the first song they all sang was this. They sang this song as an a cappella choir of like 70 year old women. And so she can sing the whole thing. So when she came to visit that year, I had a tiny baby and I actually had also just had a miscarriage. And I was, you know, struggling at a moment in your life that's quite difficult, joyful baby, sadness family are here and we used to play this song and she would sing it and I'd dance around the, the living room with my beautiful little girl. It's just, and so every time I hear it, it just fills me up.
0: Nobody is going to listen to that and not think that is fantastic. Then if you read the lyrics, you're going to go, that is fantastic. Yeah. Then if you look at the video, you go, my God, that is brilliant. And then if you click on one of the Glastonbury clips yeah. of them doing it with the crowd singing it. I know, so- it's anthemic. And and there's there's something quite profound about the message of that, rather than rah, rah, self-help, everything's great, is mm. what Guy, the writer, is saying is not everything is rosy, but, but this moment is rosy. Yeah. And in life, I'll grab it, throw the curtains wide, you know, I love your smile, I love your eyes, you know, this is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm lying here, hung over with you, naked next to me. That'll do. Yeah. That exactly. that will do. It's a good Tuesday.
1: And you know, as you as you get older you realise that. Like you realise about the the moments of happiness and, and holding on to them a little bit longer. Also he sings it with the northern accent now. Yeah. So it's very pleasing to me.
0: <laughs> now, um, you have written about having a bit of a can we say wobble? Is that I don't know what the right non triggering word is. <laughs> I'm not triggered, it's <laughs> fine. It, it, do we is, call it a breakdown do we do, say that? do we say <laughs> <laughs> lost her shit can, do we say that uh, um would you mind talking uh to, to that a bit because because that song yeah. sort of without being a hokey link that did make me think researching you and then researching that song i think oh, okay I, I, I can see something there
1: absolutely it's interesting because so i'm 50 right i was 50 in december so i'm about to be 51 and career-wise, the last 10 years of my life have been the most interesting, the most successful, the most brilliant, right? So I am a big believer and proponent in constantly telling all the young people around me, and they hate it. They hate me telling them this. Life doesn't finish at 30, doesn't finish at 40. There's lots hey, of stuff. I, I write Things. books about yeah, this. I know. I know <laughs> you do. I'm pitching to the converted there. But anyway, having said that, in my early 40s, I had a very hectic moment in my life where I had... Just had, I've had two kids. I had my kids quite late. I had Matilda daughter when I was 38, had Billy when I was 40. Um, and I became very disillusioned with my job. Um, I had been working in magazines for years and I, I loved it. I hate to be, you know, dismissive of it. I had a great time doing it, wonderful friends, all those things. I've always worked really hard, always been. But I became very like if I'm leaving my family every day to go to this job, I need to do something that means more. You know all about this too. Um, Anyway, I went to work. I took this job to go and work in digital media. I actually went to work at Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia then was a very different beast, tiny little operation. And it was very full on. And going on a learning curve like that in my early 40s, when I had two tiny children, when I had all these demands and expectations, and actually also just um, practically in my house, I'd taken a significant pay drop to do that because I'd been successful in in mainstream media and was on a nice salary and all of those things. It was a very stressful time. And a couple of years into that, I thought I kept – I have a strong streak of stoicism in that I'm always like, stop whinging, stop. You can do it. It's fine. Keep going. You'll be right, you know. And I was – beating myself up about why I couldn't cope with all this, why I couldn't have this shiny new job that was basically 24-7 at that time and the two small children and keep the relationship in the house and the social stuff on and, and my health on track. And I did basically have a breakdown. I just – I've spoken about how I, I just used to cry all the time. People would be talking to me and I would be like constantly wiping the corners of my eyes because I'd be carrying on with my life but just inside – Completely losing it. No. And I went to see a, the, a GP about it, for, for, which took a, my partner. Bless him. He's the best. He was just like, you are not okay. And I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> Crying all the time. I'm fine.
0: <laughs> Crying while I'm
1: reading the bedtime stories. I'm fine. And she said, to, this female GP said to me, I see women like you all the time. She said, women like you trying to have it all. That's what she said oh, to so me. She, so
0: she was telling you off, not helping. <laughs>
1: she, and I was like... What do you mean? I'm not trying to have it all. I'm trying to have a job and a family. I think that's like, you know. Anyway, what that moment did is I did take stock, as it were, and at that particular time I was doing a job at Mamma Mia that was very high stress and I didn't want to give back my – I loved my job but I needed to step back from it. I took a willful demotion, which I've done a couple of times actually – where I'm like, I love my work. I believe strongly in that line from Harriet the Spy: people who love their work, love life. I tell my kids that all the time, find something you love doing. It's probably too much pressure, isn't it? But I was just trying to be everything and I lost myself entirely. Um, So, yeah, I did.
0: Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. There is something, I, I give speeches about Work life I hate the phrase work-life balance, but, but living a life you find meaningful mm. and, and valuable and making a contribution, being happy in your own skin and smile on your dial. And I had a situation recently that really instructive because I think it's something that society is going to face more of, where it was Procter & Gamble, all their um, staff for the whole of Latin America, so tens of thousands of them, and they hired me to do a speech about work-life balance. And the issue... Is they as a company have sensational work-life balance policies? They have got paternity and maternity up the wazoo. They've got flexi this, flexi that. It it is world leading. Mm. Okay, you go. So I'm going. Why are you hiring me to talk about work-life balance? And the CEO, the regional CEO, goes, because they don't take it. Yeah. You want governments and unions and companies to enable it, but that's just one part. I rail against the corporate hamster wheel. You can create your own hamster wheel. So your phrase, which I have written down, willful demotion, it's brilliant. Decisions have consequences. Uh, More power to your elbow to you've got to take personal agency. So so doctors can help and maybe they can't. but, But at the end of the day, whether it's giving up drink, losing weight getting fit having some balance in your life at the end of the day I, I gave a speech to some uh, god lawyers in in America and I suggested something they go but th- we'd earn less money and I go yes yes, yeah, yes and, you, and, you you and, would
1: it's true and it's funny <laughs> I mean I think I have a healthy dose probably of of again Gen Xy kind of I definitely have worked through lots of lunch breaks I've definitely stayed late I've definitely internalized that idea And when I see the young women I work with who are actually much better at asserting boundaries, as they call it, which sometimes is a bit irritating as a boss, you kind of want to go, (laughs) your boundaries are a little bit annoying for what I do. But there's also, I have so much admiration because they also have just gone, I've seen you lot. I've seen you lot trying to do all of the things and, you know, Your wheels fell off. They're still rolling around the floor.
0: (laughs) At the end of the day, there is no medal. Anyway, so your fourth choice on Five of My Life, which is the place. Yes. Uh, You have chosen (laughs) the big tree outside Berry. I mean, there must be lots of big trees outside Berry, so could you? No, (laughs) there's
1: one. So a year and a half ago, my family made the very cliched choice of tree changing. And. Ah. Uh, we had been talking about this, Brent and I, forever <laughs> since we met, and we came to a, towards the deadline of the fact that my daughter was going to finish primary school, and COVID was a factor, but it wasn't really a factor because we'd been talking about it way before that. But I guess it was an enabler in the working from home and all the rest of it. So we have moved to the south coast of New South Wales, and we don't actually live in Berry anymore, but we lived, the, we moved to Berry for a while, and there is outside of Bury... One of the nation's great big trees. There is a register of big trees in um, different states. Giant, remarkable, historic trees. I'm not going to tell everybody where it is in Berry because you can find it for yourselves. But a local told us when we were talking about places to go walking that were beautiful, whatever, he said, you've got to go to Big Tree. I don't think it's really officially called that. But it is a stunning fig tree that is at least 500 years old maybe 700 years old and it is enormous and it stands in this amazing paddock next to a creek and the reason that I chose it as my place because there are, there could have been many places you know a place um, as an immigrant I guess place has been very important to me I love Australia I love the Australian landscape and all its different forms and it's it's been very important in my life but when Brent and I used to go to fig tree big tree when we particularly in lockdown but not only and sit under that tree, and with the kids and the dog, and there's a creek. All of our choices were validated, Nigel. <laughs> we just—it's beautiful country there. It's Darwall country, the local people, and it's got all the usual complexities of, um, you know, the history and the landscape. The idea of that tree being in the middle of this—some of it's been—it's pastoral, and now some of it is wild, like it used to be. Just being there through all that change, like I just love it. I just breathe with it. It sounds so hippie and ridiculous. And people would say, she's bringing a laptop down here and write. And I was like, no, that almost feels like the wrong thing to do here. So I love it there. And I also, as I say, Brent and I would sometimes sneak down there last summer when it was lockdown. Not that we had to sneak. It wasn't, we weren't breaking any rules. And jump in the creek with the dog. Just moments of happiness. Just one day like this, you know. Like I just absolutely love that place.
0: Um, isn't it glorious when there is somewhere like that i can understand why people get uh sometimes overly protective when something you know progress or whatever else is getting in the way and they go actually we're going to knock the big the big oh, tree down because we're building a bypass or a that mcdonald's would or something actually
1: be awful it's interesting mia who obviously is my boss and my friend and my co-host she always says to me i don't get nature she's like it's overrated i don't get it and I really get nature. Like I it's it's a source of great happiness to me and I don't – I when I first came to Australia and first lived in the – like every other English person in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, I used to sit at the beach at Coogee where I lived for years and be like, imagine growing up here. You know, there's nothing wrong with where I grew up. England is fascinating, interesting, multicultural. Manchester's rich in culture and history and I, I love it. But just the – the, the space, I used to think that Australians were this kind of species of confident, but that part of that confidence came from the space, you know, and I I see that now with my kids, but I absolutely love it and I love access to green spaces, public spaces is so important in any great city, but also where I've moved to now, I'm just rich in it. It's great.
0: We share uh, similarities in, in our journeys because, um, you know, as you say, I'm a POM as well and been here 21 years. I don't really understand logically how the sky can be bigger. I know. Because it's just the sky, for Christ's sake. But, but uh, when, especially the winter sky, when it's sunny and clear, mm. uh, I adore the fact, I, 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 I can't understand, because it can't logically be true, that when I look up in Australia, it's a bigger sky it
1: definitely than
0: in Manchester or in London. It definitely is. <laughs>
1: and it's further away. Like, it's just, I, I just adore it. We li- where we live now, we're back near the coast, down the south coast. Brent and I have carved out a couple of cheesy as it sounds, where we walk every morning. And just the fact that the water looks different every day, just that space, just that time, it's, it's really important to me
0: talking about things that are important to you, coming to the fifth and final choice on Five of My Life. And you have chosen your <laughs> writing laptop. And you're laughing at yourself. So go yeah. own it. Own it, woman. Well,
1: this was the hardest choice for me that made me feel a bit smug because I was like, oh, I don't care about things. I don't care about stuff. Because <laughs> I actually did find it really hard to choose a thing. And then I realised what it was, and that's so. I have two jobs, really. Well, I probably have more, but um, in that I have my job at Mamma Mia, where I have been in management for quite a long time, although less so now. Um, I make content. I have that busy, typical busy life there in terms of my email inbox is always pinging. Social media is a big factor of promotion. You know, the diary is always full, and then I write novels. So, and
0: I've, they are wonderful, by the way. <laughs> I, I thoroughly recommend that people. Check them out. And your latest one, that, that's thats irritatingly bumping mine uh, off all the front tables. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, The Couple Upstairs is my most recent. So I've written four novels, which again, back to that thing of achieving things. in your I didn't write a book until I was in my early 40s. i It had been a lifelong dream of mine. It was 100% what I wanted to do when I was seven, but I never thought that I would, strangely enough. Anyway, I have a, a laptop that is just for book writing. And on that laptop, there is no social media there. It's not connected to, well, it is connected to the internet only to back up my files, but it's not, it doesn't have all the usual distractions on it. And I, like many writers, I know, although I get, get it done, I am a world-class procrastinator, world-class. I will be, when it's writing time, I'm like, isn't it funny how suddenly the house needs cleaning and suddenly I need to buy that thing online that I didn't and I need to fold that washing and I need to do whatever it is. Um, And the internet, as we know, is the world's best distraction technique because everything in the world is there. So I came up with this genius. I I didn't come up with it. I'm sure someone like you told me about it on a podcast. But I came up with the idea of like just don't let that happen on this one laptop. And it has become – it's so strange. It's like a little sacred space. And because I haven't been writing lately but I'm about to start writing again, I've got to write another book for next year, it's just been sitting in my – in my bedroom on the side, the, the gold writing laptop, um, sort of, and I can't wait to get to it. I'm really excited because it's like a safe – it's like a little space where I can just be creative and I'm not distracted by a million other things. And so when I was thinking about what my favourite thing is, I was thinking that's what it is because it represents the thing I actually really love doing, which is writing, and I feel like I don't get en- enough time to do it, although that's, you know, obviously my fault. Lives in that little gold laptop. I,
0: I, I love that story. Uh, so, a fifth book in, in a the similar genre, or are you branching into um, bodice so, ripping?
1: No, I'm not re- br- branching into bodice ripping. The first two books I wrote were very much about the online world, which was where I was working and writing. And then I wrote a book called "I Give My Marriage a Year," which was uh, so, uh, which was quite successful. So that and that was about a woman who decides to give her marriage a year, as into and. I love writing about relationships and people. This latest book, The Couple Upstairs, is actually, it's, a bit of a, it's sort of a little bit of a plotty, twisty thriller which was different for me but it's actually about coercive control and abusive relationships in a way. I think I really want to write something lighter like I really do for the next book because I think we all feel that, that we would like something lighter in the world. But I have a feeling actually that the story that's calling me is a bit, it's still a bit dark. <laughs>
0: I, I, th- th- there's so many amazing uh, pieces of work that I have read that you have written. It makes me want to go and I, I didn't have time to read everything you've ever written. Oh. But the story about um, clapping too loudly. Yes. Wow. Coercive control. But the other thing, which millions of people have read, but, but I, I hadn't, which is your to don't list. Which, yes. Which, which speaks to my heart.
1: Uh, the I don't list, it was, it was very well received, I think, because women in particular, we live in a world where we all think that everybody else is doing it right. And obviously I mean it's not an original thought, but obviously social media feeds this. But every working mother, and not only working mother, but thinks that everybody else, the lunchbox is healthy, the the drawdown in the kitchen is tidy, you know, they're having sex every night. Like everybody else thinks that and that the premise of that article was we would we give each other a gift when we admit the things we don't do, rather than to just endlessly try and harry each other into productivity to-do lists. We should admit more, well I don't do this and I don't do that. And I think because when I get interviewed about books, the the number one question I ever get asked is how do you do it all? That's yeah. because they're like you're on Mama Mia and you write books and you've got children and and the number one answer and I know it's become a cliche now, but but it's I don't, right? Yeah. My partner Brent does the lion's share of our domestic stuff and he is an incredibly involved parent and There are also just lots of things we just don't do, like have a spotless home, (laughs) like have a glamorous social life, like eat well all the time, (laughs) like a million things that we just don't do. So,
0: In your wonderful to don't list article, I think some people, for me, I think there's like a higher level potentially where some people misunderstand your message, where they go, guess what, we're all flawed, we can't have it all, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. so... I don't have sex very often. The lunchbox is a mess, and my house is untidy. So all the compromises are in the domestic relationship space. When when I would say, and I imagine you might agree, is it's no, I'm I'm imperfect. Full stop. Oh, yeah. I can't have it all. Full stop. It's not. I'll do everything to make sure that work gets the perfect Holly. Works it everything else oh I'm cray cray busy and I forgot my kids at the school run you go no 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 how about tell me a story where you stayed in bed with your husband so you missed the stupid bloody meeting a hundred
1: percent and that but that's a lesson I've had to learn in terms of because I think that uh, there definitely have been times where work gets the best holly no question yeah um and when I say that you know the domestic stuff slips it's it's about your priorities in terms of I don't care about the messy third drawdown, down, but I do care about lying in bed with my son talking about nothing, you know, yeah. like Minecraft usually, some nonsense. <laughs> um, so, you know, you you pick your battles. I, we've always been very protective of weekends in our house in terms of not stuffing them through full of a million activities and a million things to do so that we can have that time of – So I 100% agree, and I also think, and we say this all the time to young women, but it's not only true of young women, that the partner you choose, if you're going to choose a partner, is the most important decision you'll make in terms of whether or not you can live your dreams,
0: (laughs) in (laughs) inverted commas. Take a dip in Lake (laughs) You. Now, listen, on 5 My Life, I am uh, religiously against it being a uh, self-help instructional podcast, but Which is lucky. <laughs> before I get to my sixth and final question, I, I am th- this has been such a wonderful conversation for me. And and I've got I've I've written down oodles of things, but there's just four lessons that I, I don't normally do this, but you go, one, career invention, reinvention is possible. So you are a legend, you're an inspiration. So people listening who might think, Oh gosh, I'm forty, I can't do it. You go, you are very inspiring. So career reinvention, yes, you can do it. Two Life can get better and you can achieve things, even if you're an old wizened 50-year-old. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? true uh, that. Three, willful demotion. Yeah. Go you. I love that phrase, I've willful demotion. I've
1: actually just taken another one. There so, you go.
0: Do, do you know Douglas Bader? I do. He's, well, I mean, I don't. His he, he, <laughs> famous book, Reach yes. for the Skies. Yes. I'm going to write another one, Reach for the Floor. <laughs> Lower your standards. <laughs> that's so good. That, that's the thing. <laughs> and the, but the fourth lesson, pick your battles. I love that you go yes there are going to be times when you want to be ambitious go 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 all that stuff but just do it as stuff that you actually want to it don't chase after it's like (laughs) love those dogs that chase cars and they don't know why but we're not dogs chase after the cars that you want to chase after so who would you like to hear on five my life next and why
1: I've suddenly been gripped with insecurity that maybe you've had them on but I don't think you have have you had Jennifer Robinson on No. Jennifer Robinson is an incredible Australian human rights lawyer. And she is, at the moment, she's promoting a book she's written called How Many More Women, which is about violence against women around the world. One of the reasons I'm particularly impressed with her is, A, she's from the south coast of New South Wales, where I've moved to, and she comes from a pretty ordinary family, and she went to a very bog-standard, ordinary public high school that my daughter may or may not. And she is an enormously world-beating success in the human rights field. And she represents Julian Assange, but she also, you know, she's one minute she's at The Hague dealing with some warlord and then she's defending Amber Heard. And then she's, but she is also, everything I read about her, she has a joy and energy for life about her that I find really inspiring because pertinent to a lot of what we're talking about today you can love your work and it can consume you but if your work consumes you and it takes all that joy you've got nothing you know and every time I see her talk about really serious issues about you know the women in Iran and what they're facing right now she still just has this passion and sparkle about her that I just find relentlessly interesting I would like to know more about her.
0: What a sensational nomination. Uh, Holly Wainwright, thank you for coming on 5 My Life and discussing your choices. It's been been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow 5 of my life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.